thank you for your donation to Corbono, a nonprofit organization dedicated to the study of Scripture according to the mind of the Catholic Church. If you like this talk, we invite you to share our website, www.corbono.com, with others so that together we may participate in the evangelization of the third millennium. Our speaker, Najim Awad, lives in San Diego, California with his wife and seven children and has been studying and teaching scripture since 1995. Najib believes the Catholic Church holds and teaches the fullness of truth, and with his tremendous zeal and insight, he is able to communicate that raw truth without sugarcoating the teachings of the Catholic Church. He also believes that our job is not to change the truth, but to communicate it clearly and directly to others. And now, here's Najib. So tonight we continue our study of the book of Revelation, and for those of you who have your Bibles with you, we are right now in chapter 16. That is a chapter that is part of the cups of wrath, or the chalices of wrath. Last week we got introduced to that last segment in the covenantal lawsuit that God enacts through the book of Revelation against His people and against the world. And we have all along seen the importance of the liturgy and how the liturgy plays the central role by which God wishes to enter into dialogue with us and through which God makes known His decrees and His judgments. And, um, of course, the liturgy is always this great fount of mercy and this great fount of love. We've seen the introduction last week, and tonight we're going to see the execution of these seven bowls. The very first thing you will notice before I start reading this chapter is that unlike the seals and unlike the trumpets, there will be no interruption this time. With the seals, there was an interruption. When we came to uh, the fifth seal and after that, we had an interruption. And in in the trumpets, we also had an interruption between the trumpets this time. None of that. There will be seven bowls, and they will all be executed without any interruption. So if you have your um, uh, Bible with me, with you, follow with me, beginning chapter 16, verse 1. Then I heard a loud voice from the temple telling the seven angels, Go and pour out on the earth the seven bowls of the wrath of God. So the first angel went and poured his bowl on the earth, and foul and evil sores came upon the men who bore the mark of the beast and worshipped its image. The second angel poured his bowl into the sea, and it became like the blood of a dead man, and every living thing died that was in the sea. The third angel poured his blood into the rivers and the fountains of water, and they became blood. And I heard the angel of water say, Just art thou in these thy judgments, thou who art and wast, O Holy One. For men have shed the blood of saints and prophets, and thou hast given them blood to drink. It is their due. And I heard the altar cry, Yea, Lord God the Almighty, true and just are thy judgments. 
The fourth angel poured his bowl on the sun, and it was allowed to scorch men with fire. Men were scorched by the fierce heat, and they cursed the name of God, who had power over these plagues, and they did not repent and give him glory. The fifth angel poured his bowl on the throne of the beast, and its kingdom was in darkness. Men gnawed their tongues in anguish, and men cursed the God of heaven for their pains and sores, and did not repent of their deeds. The sixth angel poured his bowl on the great river Euphrates, and its water was dried up to prepare the way for the kings from the east. And I saw issuing from the mouth of the dragon and from the mouth of the beast and from the mouth of the false prophet three foul spirits like frogs. For they are demonic spirits performing signs who go abroad to the kings of the whole world to assemble them for the battle on the great day of God the Almighty. Lo, I am coming like a thief. Blessed is he who is awake, keeping his garments, that he may not go naked and be seen exposed. And they assembled them at the place which is called in Hebrew Armageddon. The seventh angel poured his bowl into the air, and a great voice came out of the temple from the throne, saying, It is done. And there were flashes of thunder and a great earthquake, such as had never been since men were on the earth, so great was the earthquake. The great city was split into three parts, and the cities of the nations fell, and God remembered, remembered great Babylon to make her drain the cup of the fury of his wrath. And every island fled away, and no mountains were to be found. And great hailstones, heavy as a hundredweight, dropped on men from heaven, till men cursed God for the plague of the, of the hail, so fearful was that plague. The very first thing that we should do is beware of the Alice in Wonderland syndrome. You notice how attractive it is for us to read it materially. And imagine in our head the Hollywood movie where we see all these things happening, God and the angels up there above clouds with a bunch of laser beam cannons and men down like ants scurrying about and all this stuff happening. Well, that's our problem because we're so visually oriented these days that we substitute the reality of Scripture to the reality of TV. We need to pull back. We need to pull back from this materialistic, uh, liter literalistic interpretation because it will lead us astray. And we will miss the proper meaning of Scripture. Why is that? Because St. John has ostensibly a very different framework as his reference. One that is biblical. One that is rooted in Scripture. One that has the prophets as a backdrop. And that's where he, and effectively, the vision that God gives him is pulling from, all the references are coming from that source, the source of sacred scripture. And it makes sense if you think about it, because at the end of the day, God is the author of this vision that is imparting upon St. John, and God will not contradict himself. It's not like St. John fabricating that stuff as he goes. Let me see now. Let me throw some frogs in there. I don't like frogs. You know. No, it doesn't work that way. I mean, some, some interpreters would even would make you feel or make you believe that St. John is sewing this up bit by bit, image by image, 
right? Like, like, uh, like uh, a kid would be building up a Lego piece. I don't like this piece, my kid, take this one. That, that's not at all what's going on here. There is a biblical vision that is coming down to him, and it's, it is rooted into the tradition of Scripture. And that's where we have to get the data from. And like a detective, do some sleuthing work to rediscover the meaning because we've lost it. I had intended tonight to cover all seven of them. Um, call me an optimist, but we'll see how well we do. First, first thing first, you notice that these seven uh, bowls come down one after the other. The first one it hits the earth and causes sores among those who have the mark of the beast. So first, the earth. The second hits the sea. The third, sources of water. And then the fourth, it, the sun. So, the first four bowls, just like the first four trumpets, are hitting economic uh, sources of wealth and subsistence. Effectively, there's a disruption of nature which allows men to support themselves. Earth is hit, water is hit, the sun is hit. Okay? We've seen that in the trumpets, and we're going to go back and look at it again. The fifth one now switches gear because it's hitting the throne of the beast, and, that, and now its kingdom is in darkness. We move from a material representation to a holy spiritual one. And it's followed by the sixth, where the waters are dried up in preparation for war, and as a result of that, we see three demonic spirits issuing forth, one from the dragon, one from the beast from the sea, and a third one from the false prophet, which is the beast from the land. The beast that looks like a lamb but speaks like a dragon. And then finally, the seventh one hits the air, which is kind of odd, because we've moved from hitting physical elements to spiritual ones, and it looked like we're going back and hitting something that is physical. But it's actually not so. It is not so, because biblically, the air is always seen as the seat of power of Satan. St. Paul speaks of the spirits of the air. All right. So we are still um, focusing on a spiritual reality. So let's go back and look at it one more time. What is going on here? God... Let's look at the players, first of all. You have, among humans, those who have the, the, the mark of the beast, and they split into two groups. Those who are explicitly against the church, who do not consider themselves to be members of the church, and then those within the church trying to change the church. They all have the mark of the beast. Last time, we've said, maybe the time before that, I don't remember, that we should not look for an explicit physical mark. Why? Because God has sealed those whom He protects, 
And the sealing is, of course, baptism, and it's not visible. You don't walk around looking, seeing, seeing people sealed with the Holy Spirit. It's an invisible reality. And likewise, the mark of the beast is an invisible reality. It isn't about somebody having something tattooed on their, on their, on their skin or an RFID um, device planted in their brain or any of that nonsense. It's about a spiritual reality that is true and substantial, but simply not visible to the naked eye. So, those are the humans that, as I said, they split into three. Those who are um, sealed by the Holy Spirit, and the purpose of the sealing, if you recall, is what? To protect them from deception. Protect them from deception, so that they will always know the truth, and therefore be able to follow Jesus Christ in truth and in spirit. That's the purpose of the protection. Some may die as martyrs. Others will suffer physically. God is not saying, I'm going to protect you from that. He's saying, I'm going to allow you to persevere. I'm going to allow you not to be deceived, to know the truth, so that you may reach heaven. And be true witnesses of my love to my church and to the world. So those are the ones who are sealed. Those who are marked, sealed, marked. Hmm? Different language. One, the sealing indicates the protection of the king. The marking indicates the possession of a slave. Different category. Those are the, who are marked by the beast are those who persecute the church from outside, from, from without, and from within. There's, you should notice something really incongruous here, which is very interesting. There is no neutral ground. There isn't. You can't be, well, I'm neutral. I'm, I'm Switzerland. Um, I'm not for the church. I'm not against the church. I'm just neutral. Doesn't exist. Doesn't exist. Put differently, in homes, you either have the Holy Spirit abiding in that house, or if the Holy Spirit is not abiding, you have another spirit abiding. There's no spiritual vacuum. There's no such thing as a secular home without any spiritual presence. It doesn't exist. Just as you can't have a house that says, well, I don't, I don't need air here. We're just going to have void. And we'll breathe, love, and live happily ever forever. It's not going to work. Likewise, you cannot have a spiritual void. Right? That is what is being indicated here, and that's really important. All right. Those are the humans. Then we have the angels, the angelic creatures, split into two. Those... Angels who have passed the test and are faithful to God and those who be, have become demons. Right? The seven bowls, therefore, address the humans who are marked by the beast as well as the demons. So everybody's hit. Everybody's judged. Right? The humans are judged and hit Economically, the economic power is being taken away from them. The whole uh, wealth that they have built, the empire they constructed is being stricken. And towards the end, the beast is, always, is also stricken. That's, that's, that's the high-level view on this chapter. And 
it comes in a um, and and there there is there is a sort of a dissonance between what is being said and how it is accomplished. Uh, sort of bring bring up again Genesis. In heaven, a bowl is poured out, and when the bowl is poured out, that judgment has taken place in heaven. On earth, when the content of that bowl, if you will, if I if I may use this image, it's not that you have angels pouring out bowls, right? This is a visual representation of the reality of judgment. But if I were to follow the image, when the content of the bowl hits the earth, it doesn't happen in seconds. You understand? It would be rather that the content of that bowl enters human reality and then affects it. And sometimes that can happen in days, sometimes it can happen in years. You understand? So, so that likewise, when God said, let us make man, it doesn't necessarily follow that in that one split second, man was created body and soul. It, perf- it allows for a theistic evolution to take place at the level of the body, and then God intervening to infuse the supernatural soul at one point in time. And millions of years may have gone by. That is consistent with Scripture and consistent with an understanding, with a Catholic understanding of Scripture. It doesn't mean that this, it happened that way. It could have happened in a second. But we cannot infer from the text of Genesis that it happened in a second. At least uh, uh, the Magisterium has not spoken definitively on this matter either way. What we know for sure, which is dogma, is that God at one point intervened in the natural outflow of the universe and then infused that supernatural soul, which is not natural, supernatural by definition, into, into a creature and that creature became human. All right? So likewise here, and that's really important for us because some people may have a reading of, again, a reading of Revelation that is according to California time. You know, it happened right now. It actually happened yesterday. If it takes more than five minutes, forget it. Give me another version of Revelation. That's, this one is too slow. Well, it doesn't work that way with God. Okay, it doesn't work that way. There is this, as I said, this expansion of time. Time is relative, yeah. Uh, between what happens in heaven and what happens on earth. Okay, that, that we need to keep in mind. We're going to talk more about the reality of it, but... It, 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 we, we cannot say that just by reading this chapter from beginning to end, I read it in, what, 10 minutes, then in 10 minutes, all these events took place. It doesn't happen in the speed of thought. It happens in history, and God let this thing evolve. But it will definitely happen. And that's the key that I had mentioned to you earlier with the liturgy. Something happens in heaven, something happens in this, in this time-space continuum we call mystical time, where man and God meet in the liturgy. We praise God, we give Him thanks, we, we petition Him for something. God may have already answered. So the, in heaven, the answer it has happened. It's infallible. It will take place. But then its realization of it on earth is not instantaneous. It isn't according to, the, to our impatience. It is according to the holiness of God. All right? That's the difference. And of course, it's a test of faith for us. 
It's a test of faith. But understanding this pattern of revelation and understanding how Mass goes by and what we do in Mass helps us live our faith. All right, so we've seen overall the entire structure of this chapter. And what I just told you will help explain why after what seems to be the end of the world, because no mountain were found and no island were found, everything is done and over. Well, next chapter, no, it's not. Now we're going to go take a look at Babylon. Well, how could Babylon still exist when the islands have fled uh, and everything, you know, took a hike and there's nothing left? What's, what, where's Babylon? Floating up in the void? No. Just, again, understand the timing of the book of Revelation. It will help you make sense of how the events flow. So, the, the, the other point I want to make is something I, I alluded to earlier. Literal versus figurative interpretation. Obviously, here we're talking figuratively. Why? Well, consider the couple of, of thoughts here that are kind of important. Um, verse 19. The great city was split into three parts, and the cities of the nations fell, and God remembered great Babylon. Really? Babylon. Is he remembering great Babylon? As in Babylon, the, the city Babylon? Is that what he has got in mind? When he says, God remembered great Babylon. Is it Babylon? There are actually some commentators that would speak of the revival of Babylon before the end of times. So they're expecting Babylon to become New York again or something like that. I don't know. You know, some huge revival in Iraq. Maybe you should start buying stocks over there. So, I don't, I mean, is that what he's got in mind? Obviously not. Obviously it isn't about the physical city of Babylon. It is something else that is intended, which is actually Jerusalem. Great Babylon is Jerusalem, not Babylon. Some other interpreters will speak of Babylon being Rome. Right? But I, I think most of the evidence point to Jerusalem, not Rome. So it's one, one example that shows you that we can't just take everything we've read here like, like this I, I, I told you this example I give all the time. This extraterrestrials anthropologist, you know, anthrop- anthropology is the study of man. So this extraterrestrial anthropologist whips by earth and he's got 10, ten minutes in, in the library only. And he walks in and he picks the first book he finds and takes off. And it's Alice in Wonderland. He goes back home about, you know, 600 million light years away. So he, he has no view of earth. He, he has no clue what we do here. And he starts reading Alice in Wonderland. And then he makes his presentation before his peers about how men live on earth. So you've got rabbits who are late. <laughs> That's what the book says. You've got rabbits, and then you've got girls who are falling into holes all the time. And you've got queen of hearts that are chopping everybody's head. And he constructs a whole society of men according to those principles. And he justifies it and explains it and starts a whole New religion. And he's completely wrong. Why? Because he doesn't see the figurative language used, the irony, the symbols, the metaphors, to indicate a different reality. And oftentimes we treat the book of Revelation in exactly the same way. We're like this extraterrestrial anthropologist who found the book of Revelation, has no clue about biblical elements and symbols and thoughts and the ancient world, and we take him, start reading it like today, and then we derive this whole 
interpretation. Russia is attacking Israel, and, uh, and that's the end of the world, is right around the corner, and that sort of nonsense. Hmm? Can't do that. The, so therefore, if the, if the great Babylon is not Babylon, then the next question we must ask ourselves is, what about the Euphrates? Are they really crossing the river Euphrates? Or would the river Euphrates indicate something else? Has it become like a symbol of something different? So there was an incident, there was actually an important um, prophecy that centers around the river Euphrates, we'll get to it, but later on that became the pattern used, as we do all the time, to indicate something different. Right? To indicate something. For I was at work and somebody asked me, have you drunk the Kool-Aid? Excuse me? I won't even let my kids drink Kool-Aid. Why is he asking me if I drink Kool-Aid? And I got no clue what he's talking about. And he's looking at me thinking that I'm making fun of him. But I really don't know what he's talking about. I'm sure some of you do. Some of you don't. Do you all understand what that means? Have you drunk the Kool-Aid? Okay. I just want you to stop right here. Notice how incongruous this conversation is. I just said, have you, do you know all about the Kool-Aid? And the answer is, yeah, Jim Jones. <laughs> what? I'm talking to you about Kool-Aid. That, that, that drink thing. Who's Jim Jones? You get it? We do that all the time with the book of Revelation. We assume that back then they did not have the sort of cultural depth that we have. Well, first of all, they're all from the Middle East. You know, how, how smart can these people be? Right? Come on. Right? And so, so we therefore extirpate the text from all this co- context. And there's a really good reason for it. You know why? You ready for this one? You're not going to like it. Are you ready for it? Because we're lazy. And I don't mean lazy as I don't want to make an effort. No, no, no. It's a little bit worse than that. We're lazy because we don't want to love. Lord Jesus, I love you as long as you can package Scripture into Big Mac portions and make it easy for me to understand. Beyond that, I'm sorry, Lord. I'm not going to make that effort. That's why. First of all, you're talking about Middle East. It's complicated over there. And these people seem really weird. And they have an accent. I don't like people with accents, personally. Uh, and, 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 And so... We, living here in a civilized society, looking at all these people living like this, really have a hard time understanding that stuff. So we would much rather, if the Lord Jesus Christ was actually born, I don't know, in Washington, D.C., you know? Or or Paris, maybe, would put up with it. But for goodness sake, the Middle East? I mean, you can have picked any other place. So we have the tendency to westernize Scripture. Right? And that is our problem. We don't want to simply say, okay, Lord, it's over there. I'm going to just understand it. I'm going to love it because you were born there and there's a really good reason for it. And I'm going to really roll up my sleeves and understand it the way it was written in its own original context. And by the way, you know, this doesn't only concern those of you who were born in the Western world. Those of you born in the Middle East are twice as, as guilty as those who are here in America, at least some of you read the Bible. 
I'm, don't get me going on this thing. I'm just going to stop. I'm going to stop. Okay, I don't know what I'm talking about all of this. Let me go back to something safer. All right. So, it's figurative language, all right? It is not a literal, uh, you know, physical language. You have to be careful of this. Now, the other extreme, it does not mean that this had no historical reality. It did, and I will point those elements to you as we go through. I am not saying by that that this whole text had nothing to do with the context in which John lived or that the realities that he's describing did not actually occur. I'm not saying that at all. They did. But we must understand them in its proper context, in its proper reality. There is a sort of a pattern that is taking place here, and that pattern was realized during the life of St. John, but it's also realized today during our lives. The actors may change, the labels may change, the way we do things may change, but this pattern holds. Namely, what? That God talks to us, instructs us, warns us, loves us. And He speaks to His church audibly with words that we can understand. And He speaks to the world and warns the world using nature. And if we don't listen... He moves on to a partial form of punishment, which is a warning. Shape up or else. And if we persist, we as the world persist, then what does he allow what, what happens next? He allows the world to persecute his church. Funny, isn't it? That's the counterintuitive part. Right? You think he's gonna go out and destroy the world. No, no, he allows the world to persecute his church. Why? Because when the world persecutes his church, the church recedes from the world. And as the church recedes, the light of the world dims. And the world is in darkness. And that's the worst form of wrath that God can exercise when He allows men to be in darkness. And then He brings it to an end. And so you see empires raise and fall. Countries raise and fall. And that's the pattern throughout history. Now what regulates this pattern? What makes it happen? The liturgy. Mass. And that's where Catholics have a couple of fuse that just go out. Because it places the church and the liturgy and Catholics in the center of history. Liturgy makes history. And that, therefore, means that we have a great responsibility. Far greater than any one of us would think by becoming Catholic. So, let's begin. Then I heard a loud voice from the temple telling the seven angels. The voice is directly or indirectly that of God. It could be that of the altar, it could be that of the four creatures, but ultimately it is that of God giving the command. This is implied by the fact that God has been mentioned as being in His temple. We've seen that in a previous chapter. God is in His temple. And remember, the temple is completely closed. No one can enter anymore until these bowls are consumed, until they all happen. So God is in His temple, and a voice issues out from the temple. So it is the command of God. Why is that important? Because there's always this notion that God permits these things to happen. His permissible will. Well, I have not yet figured this business of permissible versus, versus uh, His direct will. I'm still grappling through it. But one thing is clear here is that nothing is happening that is just permitted by God. It is directed by Him. He gives the orders. He's giving the commands. He's saying, you do this and you do it now. And it happens. And we see this in Isaiah chapter 66, verse 6. 
a voice from the temple, a voice of the Lord rendering recompense to his adver- adversaries. So, recompense to his adversaries, of course, is an irony. It's a form of a curse. So, he's in his temple and he's the one rendering recompense. The seven bowls of God's wrath implies, as we have seen in the previous talk, a judgment upon covenant breakers, those who have persecuted God's people. And if you want references for those, you may check Ezekiel chapter 14, verse 19, Jeremiah chapter 10, verse 25, Psalm 69, verse 25, and Zephaniah chapter 3, verse 8. Now let's look at the first, the first five bowls where God is punishing the ungodly by depriving them of earthly security because of their persecution and idolatry. So the first bowl, God causes suffering for the idolatrous followers of the world system. So the first angel went and poured his bowl on the earth, and foul and evil sores came upon the men who bore the mark of the beast and worshipped its image. It is, again, one of those ironic twists where the... the um, Punishment fits the crime. These people were marked by the beast, and now they are marked in their flesh by those sores. So the punishment fits the crime. You know, sometimes people think that the, uh, the, the, um, the law that God gave, eye for eye and, and um, tooth for tooth and, and um, an eye for an eye, uh, by the way, here's a little quiz for you. Think about that for a second. Not for a second. Think about it for a week. God could have said it in a million different ways. Why did he pick the eye and the tooth? Think about that. Yes, people think that this law is sort of only for us human, that it's sort of not the law of God. But actually it is. It is the law that Christ will use during our personal judgment. The punishment will fit the crime. Do you understand? An eye for an eye and tooth for tooth is not a law of cruelty. It is a law of justice. Because before an eye for an eye and, and a tooth for tooth, it used to be you know, an eye for the whole tribe. Okay, You pluck my eye, I'm going to destroy you and your family and everybody else. That was the law. Law, law of vengeance. And so this is a law of justice, and it's applied here. You were marked by the beast, you will be marked by sores. The sores are real, but not necessarily in literal fashion. Let's understand, again, what is a sore? If you have a sore, what do you feel? Pain. Right? And it's a con- continuous pain. It doesn't go away. Right? And if you're living in a time where you don't have these wonderful creams we have these days... What can you do with that sore? Very little. Right? So it's ongoing. And it's pain in your flesh. Right? In your flesh. So the intent here is not necessarily a physical sore, as if God is just going to punish them in one way. The intent here is all form of ills. You know, cancer, heart attacks, you name it. Okay? So let's not be purely literalistic and think, okay, it just means this. No, it means anything that will cause man to suffer in his flesh. All right? 
And that could be for one of two reasons. The first one is that it's an occasion for man to recognize what he has done. Right? What he has done. Um, in a mystical sense, it's an occasion for man to recognize the pain he has caused to the innocent one on the cross. Okay? If you go through the passion of Jesus Christ, you will see that many of those things that are brought upon people, he took upon himself. Okay? So it'd be an occasion for somebody to realize the pain that Jesus went through for them, because that suffering will make them more in tune with the pain that Christ bore, and allow them therefore to repent. Or, it will be a preparation for hell. I'm just giving you a foretaste of what you're going to be looking for. Now, the sores in and of themselves can bring men to greater glory, as was the case of Job. Job was covered with sores, chapter 2, verse 1 through 10, or, as I said, a sign of punishment. Right? But in this specific instance, you will see that as the bowls were being poured, men cursed God, and they cursed Him three times. And you know what the meaning of the number three is by now, don't you? Right? So it's an irreversible curse. The second bowl, God punishes the world economically. In the trumpet, in the second trumpet, God punished the world econ economy, but partially only, because one-third of the, the sea turned to blood. One-third one of the creatures living in the sea died. One-third of the boats uh, perished. If, I think so. I think there were boats who perished. But be it as it may, it was one-third, one-third, one-third. This time, there's no one-third, the whole thing. So it is a, it's, it's an economic disruption. Why? Because back then, what, how would you ship, how would you move goods from place to place? By sea. That was the only way. Right? There were no 18-wheelers. Okay? And there were no trains. So the sea and the boats were absolutely essential for flowing goods. <clears throat> from place to place. So when God hits the sea and turns it into blood, the whole economy is disrupted. Uh, so what is, the, what, is, what, is the, what is the implication, therefore? Is it that, you know, the Mediterranean is turned into blood or the Pacific Ocean? No, of course not. We need to understand, we need to see beyond the symbols. The imagery here may indicate famine condition or total deprivation of economic goods. Every living thing can also be translated as every living soul. Right? So every living soul dies, meaning what exactly? Meaning that all those who have made earth their dwelling have perished spiritually. Okay? It's the death of every soul. Spiritually, those who have rejected God, those who have decided to be against His kingdom, has now suffered from this uh, from this wrath. This economic judgment need not be universal. It doesn't mean that everywhere throughout the whole planet this is happening. It is specifically tied to the historical event that is at hand. The third bowl. The angel who pours the bowl is called the angel of water. The angel of water. That is a key indication for us that angels are after natural events. Right? We know the universe runs, and we know the universe runs and stays orderly. Why is the Earth? Why does the Earth keep its orbit around the Sun? 
Why does the moon keep its orbit around Earth? Even though we, ha we have the laws of entropy, which basically says everything tends to disorder. How come we have this order, this ordered universe that stays ordered? Right? When, in fact, our homes don't stay ordered. You clean your house, you go on vacation for a month, you come back, things are broken, there's dust everywhere, you've got to clean the whole place. How come the universe is not like that? Think about that. Well, yeah, we have all these physical laws. Yeah, okay, but what maintains these things in place? Angels. You see how we have a satisfying theological answer that actually meshes well and combines really nicely with science, and there's no opposition. And by the way, this whole subject will be covered in detail when we start Genesis, because I'm going to spend quite a bit of time dealing with the science of Genesis. Now, the interesting thing here, if you note, is that the usual formula typically has been in, in, in the book of Revelation, thou who art and wast and who is to come. Right? It was the typical way to say Yahweh, the one who is. And since uh, Jews would not say the name of God, St. John has recourse to this formula, the one who was, who is, and who is to come. Who is, who, well, that's the one who is. Right? He's eternally present. Here it's changed. The one who was, the one who, uh, who is and was, O Holy One, is added now. O Holy One. Why is He holy? Because of His judgments. Because of His judgments. We, we tend to associate God's holiness with His mercy. But here the angel is associating God's holiness with His judgments. Therefore, his justice. You, you, you understand? God is holy not because he's merciful. God is holy because he is just. That's key. Why? Because it teaches us how we have to interact with God. Right? It teaches us about the holy, the holy, the, the awesome holiness of God, and therefore magnifies his mercy. Since God is so awesome. His holiness is so awesome and He's so just that He effectively causes any man who approaches Him to faint and to die. And how great is His mercy that He would allow a man to come to Him even when He is a sinner and receive Him. The more you are in tune with God's justice, the more you are in tune with His mercy. You appreciate it more. This is an act of demonstration of God's sovereignty over history. Right? What God is doing right now He's doing it because He is the sovereign uh, um, Lord of history. And all the ancients, all the way till this 18th century, maybe 17, always understood this way, understood the, the actions of history as being directed by God. And understood that when plagues hit them, that has something to do with being sinful. And so they would attempt to repent. They would pray. They would do... They would fast, right? Uh, and, and, um, and, and today, we simply explain everything with science. Therefore, leaving no space for repentance, which is something man deeply needs to be able to be at peace. The punishment fit, fits the crime. Okay, Wisdom, chapter 11, verse 16 through what things anyone sins, through these he is punished. Whatever, whatever is, uh, the, w 
when we sin in a certain way, this is how we are punished. Okay? Because the punishment fits the crime. God is just. Now, here I'm talking purely in terms of people who don't want to repent, who didn't ask for forgiveness, who's not, you know, who, who are not contrite, who do not avail themselves of the mercy of God and the graces that flow from the cross, etc. Et don't, don't misunderstand me, right? But in, 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 in purgatory, though, for those who are going, for those of us who are going to be spending some time there, um, for the temporal punishment due to sin, the punishment will fit the crime. So there was a book that my wife read. I didn't read it, but she would quote to me some passages from it. And this is not an authoritative book, but it's a book of saints who've had visions of purgatory. Um, for instance, those who were, uh, who were um, known to gossip would, uh, would be punished by their tongues. And I will spare you, the, the, spare you the details, but you can just imagine how they were expressed. Okay, uh, you know, freezing and burning and all that wonderful stuff. But uh, so that's just was an example of what is meant by the punishment will fit the crime. Now, what is being indicated here are degrees of suffering. So, in this third, uh, when the third angel poured his bowl into the rivers and the fountains of water, and they became blood. Um, for men have shed the blood of saints and prophets, and thou hast given them blood to drink. It is their due. The drinking of blood is not, again, a literal thing. This is not God saying, okay, here you go. You got blood, drink it. Okay, you need to pull away. What does it mean to drink blood? What is, it, what is indicated by this expression in the Old Testament? It essentially indicates when people fight among each other and they make their blood flow. So when nations fight against nations and kill each other, the blood is flowing. So the expression, drink somebody else's blood, meaning to go after him and to kill him. It's an indication of violence. It's an indication of war where people effectively destroy each other. All right? So those nations that have come together against the church and persecuted the church are now going to turn against each other and persecute each other. The punishment fits the crime. That's what is being meant here. All right? Uh, for instance, Isaiah chapter 49, verse 26. And those who afflicted you, O Israel, will drink their own blood, and all flesh will perceive that I am the Lord who redeems you. So in general, drinking blood does not refer to death only, but various afflictions. So cities being destroyed, towns being destroyed, families being killed, uh, people being maimed, all these different types of pain due to violence are indicated by this notion of drinking blood. All right? The cry from the altar, so I heard the altar cry, Yea, Lord God, the Almighty, true and just are thy judgments. The cry from the altar corresponds to what? The plea that the saints who were hiding under the altar made to God. They asked for God, when will you avenge our blood? And God told them, wait till your, your, your number is complete. Now the number is complete. And they see that God is just. And they rejoice in His justice. They rejoice in His justice. Okay? They proclaim that His judgments are right. So in other words, what's really key here is that God, part of the satisfaction of being in heaven, part of being in heaven is seeing justice vindicated. So God makes these saints share into 
His judgment. They see what is going, what is going on. Right? And they are vindicated. So any one of you who suffered true persecution, who suffered at the hand of a colleague, a neighbor, a family member, etc., pray for these people because that's what's awaiting them. That's why St. Paul tells us to pray, not to curse. He, when he says pray and don't curse, he doesn't mean pray and don't swear. He means pray and don't send imprecations against them. Don't curse them because what is coming down from God with His justice is extremely painful. So just as God showed mercy upon you, show mercy on others. But understand that at one point, God's justice will come and nothing will sway it. Okay? So there is a contrary notion that you know Catholics should never rejoice in any justice being met. Well, this is nonsense. Complete nonsense. Right? If somebody has been on your case for six years at work, let's say, and suddenly he's fired, you rejoice. Yeah. It's a healthy thing to rejoice. It's normal. It's expected. It's part of God's plan. He takes care of those who love Him. Alright? There's absolutely nothing wrong with that. Now what's wrong is to take that and then, of course, you know, aggrandize ourselves and things that we're saints and then look at others with arrogance and fall into that pit. That's a completely different story. But to rejoice in God's care for us? Sure. Thanks, Lord. You know, I, I, I feel your paternal care for me. You're here. You're, you, care, you care for me, which means that all these years you've been with me. You've never abandoned me. That's a wonderful sense of God's presence when I look back down. All these years I've been putting up with this guy and you've been with me. Okay? In Deuteronomy chapter 32 verse 24, we see that part of the curses for covenantal disobedience is that people will be consumed by burning heat. Oh, that means I moved on to the fourth bowl. All right, well, I'm going to just do it in order. Sorry. So the fourth bowl now is thrown against the sun, and the sun is allowed to scorch men. The sun is allowed to scorch men. Right? What does that mean? means, welcome to global warming. Well, not really. It means, again, that we, we have to understand this with its appropriate meaning. Fire is always judgment. Fire is always judgment. And therefore, when God takes something which is the source of life and turns it sort of upside down and allow it now to scorch men, he's effectively telling them, you are under judgment constantly. As long as there is light, you're under judgment. And oh, by the way, if you're wondering about the night, darkness is coming. Right. So effectively, it is, if you think about it, hell on earth. Okay? It is hell on Just as there is heaven on earth, which we've been talking about all the liturgy, the mass, right? There's also something, such thing as hell on earth. Right. Now that judgment is not necessarily physical. It's not like their skin is burning. Again, when you feel the fire of judgment, what, what, what do you go through? Well, you go through depression, you go through psychological woes, you anxiety, you're restless, you're unhappy, you can't seem to be able to get your acts together, your life is a mess, on and on and on and on and on. Okay, now please, don't, don't, don't make the mistake of thinking that anybody who's in that situation fall under God's judgment. Never said such thing, all right? 
I pointed out to you earlier with Job. Job had sores, and Job had all the problems, and Job is a saint. Be careful. We don't want to fall into the, the commit the false syllogism of thinking that anytime somebody is in pain, that somebody is under a curse. It doesn't work that way. Right? Lots of saints are under lots of pain, and they're certainly not under a curse. Okay? There's such thing as redemptive suffering. Remember that. That, that. That's why Jesus said, do not judge. He meant it. As in, you guys don't know. You don't have the ability to tell where, where somebody's at. And where he's going. You can't really say that. So be careful. Especially because we're impatient and we are imprudent. And you know we want to uh, have it our own way. The other important thing is that the significance of this event indicates a disruption of the, in the cosmic clock. Remember that the sun is part of the cosmic clock used by the ancient to tell time. And they measure time, they measure dynasty according to the cosmic calendar. And so when the sun is also disrupted, it indicates a disruption in the dynasty, in the political power that is in place. And uh, as a result of the combination of both, people are deprived of earthly security. Uh, likely with an economic focus. People are now fidgety. Right? Um, the stock exchange is not working the way you expect it to. Okay, you can't find a job. Things are not going the way you want. Even though you're making a lot of money, you feel like you're poor. You don't have any security. You know what's going to happen to you. You live and, and then you're, you, you, you have your retirement and you go on cruise and you die all alone. You're starting to understand what I'm talking to you about? It isn't something that's far-fetched. It's not something that we don't experience right now. We do. Because revelation applies to every age, across the ages. <coughs> Just like the sixth trumpet, this bowl is met with blasphemy and non-repentance. Right? So what happens here is that once it's poured, men were scorched by the fierce heat and they cursed the name of God who had power over these plagues, and they did not repent and give Him glory. Notice, these are people who recognize that God has power over these things. Right? And still, they curse His name. Ever wondered, why is it that only the name of Jesus is used in vain? Not the name of Muhammad. Not the name of Buddha. Only the name of Jesus. Ever wonder why? Intuitively, we know where the power is. They blaspheme the name of God. This is slander or defamation of the name of the true God. Why? Because they are ascribing to Him the cause of their woes. When in fact the cause of their woes reside with them, they followed the beast. They made it their own choice. And the punishment is only fitting the crime. By being marked by the beast, they have become an image of the beast. Okay? Because outside of chapter 16, the blasphemy of God is attributed to the beast only. And now the followers of the beast speak like the beast. They blaspheme the name of God. They deny that God has anything to do with their suffering. They deny God's authority. Is that anything familiar? Right? God has nothing to do with Katrina, of course. God has nothing to do with the tsunami, of course. God is outside the physical world. He's actually so far removed from earth that he's pretty much irrelevant Mother Earth will take care of us. In the fifth bowl, God punishes hardened idolaters by causing them to suffer, by revealing to them their irremediable separation from Him. So this is now a spiritual suffering. In the fifth bowl, uh, 
we have the following. The fifth angel poured his bowl on the throne of the beast, and its kingdom was in darkness. Men gnawed their tongues in anguish, and men cursed the God of heaven for their pains and sores, and did not repent from their deeds. This is second cursing. So, what I told you earlier about the historical uh, manifestation of these things, let me quote to you very quickly um, from this book. This is taken from Josephus' description of the war um, in 70 AD that led to the destruction of Jerusalem. Josephus, who was a, uh, he was a Jew and he was captured by Vespasian, or Titus, one of them, Titus being the son of Vespasian, and he was made a witness. He basically was a journalist recording the war as it happened. And so he says, Josephus explains that when it was clear that Jerusalem would be destroyed, the Romans continually urged the people to surrender and repent of their rebelliousness. He records how Titus tortured the leaders of the rebel movement in full view of the city so that they would now at length leave off their madness and not force him to destroy the city, whereby they would have those advantages of repentance. Even in their utmost distress, they would preserve their own lives and so find a city of their own and that temple which was their peculiar. So Titus had no intention of destroying Jerusalem or the temple. He had reverence for the temple. And he was trying to tell them, look, Give it up, and I'll leave the city, and I'll leave the temple. Okay. Just as John speaks of the people of the new Babylon cursing God, Josephus writes, They seem to me to have cast a reproach upon God himself, as if he were too slow in punishing them. And this is Josephus writing about his own people. Okay. And the sixth, the, so the fifth bowl, God punishes, yeah, we're... Let, let, me, let me tell you a little bit more about this. This is really interesting. Uh, the content of the fifth bowl are emptied up onto the throne of the beast. So the throne represents the beast's sovereignty over his realm. Now, where is that throne? If you remember from the letters, Pergamum, the city Pergamum, was known to be built where Satan has his throne. Why? Because Pergamum was a... Um, Local Roman city with power. Right, so the throne of the beast, where's the throne of the beast then? Rome. Rome. All right? That's where the throne of the beast is because it is the source of the Roman uh, power. You start to understand why we're called the Roman Catholic Church. You understand? When God has victory over the world, what does he do? If you conquer your enemy, what do you do? You go and you make his capital your own. Get it? That's why we're called the Roman Catholic Church. That's what God did. Okay. So, the, the of course... Much of, of these bowls, just as the trumpets, are taken from the plagues of Egypt. I, I suppose you've got, that. you've got that, right? All those plagues are taken from the plagues of Egypt, every single one of them. And in the plagues of Egypt, there is also the plagues of darkness, where Egypt is plunged into three days of darkness, right? And this was, for Egypt, it was an attack against the god Ra, which was the sun god. And in the case of the plagues, God was saying to the Egyptians and to the Hebrews, 
look, I'm stronger of all these guys. I'm going to show you. I'm going to take them out one by one. That was the meaning of the plagues. All right? So now, what is God saying to Rome? The emperor, remember, is considering himself a god. Right? There was a Roman saying, there is no other name by which we shall be saved other than the name of Augustus. Augustus was the one who brought this about. Right? And God is saying, okay, I'm going to show you now. And so, what happens is that it indicates multiple forms of political woes that were experienced by Rome during the 60s. There was the Pax Romana, and right after that, Rome was besieged with attacks from within and without, all the way through 10 years, nonstop. Nonstop. Okay? It also indicated removal or religious power, the weakening of the imperial cult. So when God darkens... The, the throne of the beast and plunges his realm in darkness, he effectively is reducing his power, his hold over the nation. So remember, this is not just about Rome, it's about the beast. Right? So there's demonic power behind that. In Exodus chapter 10, verse 23, it is stated that the darkness was so dense that the Egyptians were visually separated from one another. No man saw his brother. And Wisdom 17 understands the darkness of this Egyptian plague as symbolizing spiritual separation from true God. They were exiled from eternal providence. So the the, the darkness essentially separates the followers of the beast from God and shows them them their state as being separated from God. Right? And you have people today who do the same thing. I'm sure you have people who profess not to believe in God. And the funny thing is that they'll ask you, well, does this mean I'm going to hell? Right? And the answer, of course, is, well, yes. And they're offended. How could you say that? Well, I'm not saying it. You're saying it. What do you mean? Well, wait a minute. What is heaven? Heaven, I'm telling you, heaven is what? It's the dwelling of the Trinity. Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. And it is a place where you only have Catholics. You just told me you don't want to go there. God is not going to yank you by your ear and bring you in there kicking and screaming. You said, I don't want to go there. Well, okay. You're not going to. And they look at me like they're stunned. But this is what you just said. And the, What is hell? What is hell? Hell is the absence of God. You just said, I don't want to be with God. Well, duh. Right? It's not such a big mystery. Now, of course, with God's mercy and prayers and intercession, who knows where this person is going to be. But currently, when they say that, if they were to be zapped on that instant, that's what they would go. All right? Without calling on, on God's name and asking and telling Jesus, I want to be with you, well, they made their own choice. Sometimes we make things a lot more complicated than they really are. And that's why they nod their tongues because of the pain. When you're separated from God, you can never be restful. Our hearts are restless, O Lord, until they rest in you, St. Augustine. Right? So you shouldn't be surprised if the world out there is restless and wants to watch TV and listen to music and cannot put up with silence and is afraid of darkness and has to have light all the time and being distracted. 
Yeah. You, you can't. And you should see the psychology of the book of Revelation. It's so accurate. Right? It's right on. This is what happens. And so, what happens? If you don't repent, you're going to harden your heart. There's no other choices. And so we see the second hardening of the heart and the cursing of God. They recognize God as their author, but that this leads them to blaspheme His name instead of repenting. Okay, and then they do not turn away from their work, which according to chapter 9, verse 20, which we've read, is what? Murder and thievery. No doubt against Christians. And according to the pattern of Egyptian plagues, the hardening of the heart here is irremediable. Okay, when, when they reach that level, typically they will not just come back. Unless a special grace of God, they will not come back. They're just, they're on their merry way. You've got to understand why Christ says, right? Wide and easy is the way that leads to perdition, and many finds it. And narrow and difficult is the path that leads to heaven, and few find it. Well, there you go, right? Okay. Uh, of course. Okay. We're, we're at the end of the hour. I'm not going to be able to complete the six and seven bowls. We'll continue next week. What is important for us through this whole bleak picture because when, unfortunately, we tend to have a very earthly, very earthly concern. We're concerned about our own skin. All right? That is a really good chapter to meditate upon and say to the Lord, frankly, Lord, this is wonderful and all, but I don't see your glory through this. If you're having issues with God, you bring them with you to the church. Right? You bring them on and you say, I don't understand how could you manifest your glory through something like that. Show me. Remember, 1,000 difficulties do not amount to one doubt. Right? The fact that you may be struggling with this passage, the fact you may be having a hard time rejoicing over something like this, is not reason to doubt. It's just a reason to bring it over and say, Lord, I don't understand. Help me understand. And the reason is because most of us are diseased by this poison of false mercy. Where we only want to attribute to God these warm, fuzzy feelings and nothing else. God cannot be just. God cannot ask us to account. God can't send anybody to hell. God can't do anything. Itsy bitsy. Painful. We do it all. We send ourselves to hell. It's all our actions that cause us to be condemned. Poor God. He has no say. It's all about us. Well, that might be a God that scratched where it itches, but it's not the God of the Bible. And it's certainly not a biblical view of who God is. And we have to reshape our thinking according to Scripture, not shape Scripture according to our thinking. That's the important message here. Because once we start seeing it, we really delve into the depth of the mystery of the Trinity and our heart will rejoice. And we will be truly at peace knowing that God is a Father who takes care of us, who loves us, whose general will is for all mankind to be saved and who then expects us to act responsibly. Which means to do our share in bringing the good news to others. 
Because then if we really love Him, if we really love Him with His justice and His mercy, we will be merciful towards others. Because we will fear His justice for them. And we will truly intercede for them. Never use mercy as an excuse for laziness. Because then it isn't love. It is self-love. And so tonight when you go home, if this passage struck you, this text struck you as difficult, if you have questions, take them into prayer and let the Holy Spirit open your mind and heart to His truth and show you the beauty of God and show you the truth about God and show you how all of that is expressed in the liturgy. And then use the rest of the week to prepare for the rejoicing of Sunday. God bless you. We have some time for questions before we move into prayers. Yes. Yes. The, the categorization was a sort of a snapshot in, uh, uh, in time. At a point of time, if we were to look at any moment in time, you either have people who are faithful and love God and is in His church. Those who are in His church who are supposed to love Him but don't. Right? They're like the beast who look like a lamb but actually speaks like a dragon. And then you have those guys outside. Now, it doesn't mean that if I now roll the movie that those three groups remain static. Things evolve and things change and some who are outside come in, some who are in go out and some move from one group to the other. Right? So that's all due to God's mercy and His love and His compassion and patience He has for us. But when the judgment happens, right, there's this sort of freeze, if you will, and these, these people are assumed their position into these three groups. But remember, we will see that we have to persevere. So it is not enough to be just sealed. The sealing is there for us to persevere. The sealing will not act on its own. Baptism takes away original sin. But baptism alone will not get us to heaven if we do not avail ourselves of the graces of baptism. Right? St. Augustine, the God who created you without you will not save you without you. Right? So even those who are sealed can decide to just quit. We'll see the exhortation coming saying, persevere. You have to persevere till the end. But if I freeze the, the, the movie, if you will, at one point in time, every person will fall into one of those three categories. They're either outside the church, or they're really Catholic, or they are false Catholic. Make sense? Okay. Yes. Question is, I may have mentioned that fire is always destructive. If I did, it's, uh, I, I want to take it, take it back. This was not what I was trying to say. What I was trying to say was that in the book of Revelation, every time fire is used, it is used for the purpose of judgment, right? not destruction. Right? And it's only contained within the book of Revelation. All right? So within that book, fire is used as a sign of God's judgment. But outside of the book, when you look at the whole scripture, yes, fire has many, many different shades of meaning and different meaning, one of which is life-giving. You're absolutely right. Make sense? Okay. Yes. The question is, how do we know, or how do you know, that, meaning me, so I'm asking the question, anyway, how do, okay, how do we know that great Babylon means Jerusalem? Right? How do we come up with that if we read a text? If you read a text, you will not come up with it. Unless God inspires you on the spot to you no. Know, you gotta roll up your sleeves and do work. You gotta ask yourself a simple question. There's a methodology. Okay, 
He says Great Babylon. So think about Kool-Aid. How did he know that Kool-Aid meant what? Jim Jones. Where did he come up with Jim Jones from? Because he's part of that culture. He was there when it happened, when it seemed into the culture, and he knew that association became obvious to him. Let's fast forward a thousand years. Somebody's reading a text where it says, have you drunk the Kool-Aid yet? Would that person be able to say Jim Jones? Highly unlikely. What does he have to do? He says, okay, how's Kool-Aid used in that culture? He's got to do research, right? We do the same thing. And I'll show you when we get there how Babylon is used to refer, how Jerusalem is referred to by Babylon, by the prophets. Okay? Any other question? Yes. Can I answer your question? This is, yes, I'll, I'll, can I answer your question? The question, the answer to your question is actually very simple. It will never happen. This whole business of apostasy in the church, all right, this is it. I mean, that's why, I, mean, I don't have time to go through the, the, you are Peter and on the struggle with my church, but that's precisely the charism of infallibility. A pope can never teach something that is not true in realm of theology or morality. It will never happen. That's why this is his church. It is protected by the Holy Spirit that will not allow a pope to speak or to teach something that is untrue to deceive people. So this business of apostasy, That's what I thought. that is not something that is according to Catholic teaching. That you will have people, bishops and, and even popes who may have a dissolute life. Yes, we've had those in history. right? We've had those. But none of them taught anything. Okay? In fact, some of the uh, most powerful Protestant uh, exegetes try to find something that a pope said that contradicts what some other pope said, and, and it leads to really interesting gymnastics in Hebrew and in Greek, and I'll spare you all that. But it doesn't exist. That's one of the mark of the church. It, the church is holy, and therefore the, a holy church never teaches anything that is deceiving. The Holy Spirit will not permit it. You understand? It is, it is the mark of the church. That's one where you don't have to... to there's one thing you don't have to worry about. Yes. <laughs> yes, in chapter 22, we win. We've already won. You come to Mass, you've already won. That's the idea. Yes. Correct. I, what I meant by it will never happen as in the magisterium or the Pope committing apostasy. The teaching office of the church will never commit apostasy. But that you have multiple bishops, 90% of the bishops, going haywire, we've seen that under the Arian heresy. 90% of the, heresy, the, the bishops were uh, Arians. All right? So yeah, it happened. It will happen. It can happen. But the teaching office of the church will never teach something that deceives the people. That's the key. Yes. Well, yes, the only thing I would say to you is this. We, we have, again... Those bishops and those priests who are teaching and uh, saying things against the teaching, the, 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 the teaching of the Holy Church are certainly not being bishops and priests for Jesus Christ at that moment in time. At that moment in time. We have to pray for them, for their repentance, and for their conversion. Right. So the only place where I would be cautious is, again, 
It is not up to us to decide that someone has now the irremediable mark of the beast on them, and they're, therefore they're, they're destined to hell. We have to be careful with that. Yes, but you can think that they're definitely working against against Christ when they work against His church. Well, actually, it's really interesting because this is this passage is always misconstrued. Jesus said, "And the gates of Hades shall not prevail against her." If you really think about it in ancient terminology, in ancient terms, if the gates of a city do not prevail against you, what does that mean? No, it means that you were able to conquer the city. It means that the church opens up Hades, not Gehenna. Gehenna is hell. Hades is the place where the souls are kept. And that is one of the foundation for our understanding of purgatory, that the church can release souls from heaven. It had nothing to do about hell actually attacking the church and church resisting. Never. It's a misunderstanding of that passage. It's not at all part of what Christ is saying. Yeah. All right? Yes. No, I didn't say that. I said you, if, if at one point... God brings justice to someone who was persecuting us. True persecution, we have to examine ourselves. Sometimes it's self-inflicted. We can act in, in a way that is so rude that we really deserve the persecution. I'm talking about true persecution, but let's assume it is. And then after five years, it, it halts. And this person now, something happens that basically puts this person on a different track and they're gone. And, uh, and they're out of your way. They've been fired, let's say, from, from their job. Yeah, you can, you can rejoice in that. There's absolutely nothing wrong with it. Yeah, what is the line between rejoicing and something worse? Very simple. Rejoicing means you look to God and say, thank you, thank you, thank you. Thank you. I'll pray for them, but thank you. You rejoiced. Something worse? Your gaze is on them. That's, that's it. It's very simple. As long as your conversation is with God, and you're telling God, wow, that was great. Right? I'll pray for them, but thank you. You're fine. As soon as you start thinking about them and what you might do and not do this, you're in trouble. It's that simple. Okay? God bless you. We hope you've enjoyed this talk from Corbono. For more information about this and other talks, please visit our website at www.corbono.com. Thank you and God bless you.